0: All right, Matthew 5, 1 to 12. Um, Now when he saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them, saying, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful. For they will be shown mercy blessed are the pure in heart for they will see god blessed are the peacemakers for they will be called sons of god blessed are the are those who are persecuted because of righteousness for theirs is the kingdom of heaven blessed are you when you when people insult you persecute you and falsely say all kinds of things evil against you because of me rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. We are starting a new series on Jesus' teaching because recently I've been doing some reading and I've been getting super excited about it. Um, And if I can admit to you, I really hadn't been all that inspired by Jesus' teaching until recently. Everyone has certain parts of the Bible that really speak to you, um, but the long discourses and speeches that Jesus gives in the Gospels never really had been the most exciting to me. I was more of an Old Testament guy all the way through. Um, It wasn't until recently that God really showed me some really cool parts, um, largely through NT that I feel like I've started to make sense of them. Uh, For instance, one of the things that made me feel like I didn't understand this passage was that it always felt like some kind of disembodied advice for life, like it could be said at any time and mean the exact same thing. Um, I've never really been able to understand that kind of stuff. As you might be able to recognize from being with me for four months now, um, I'm a person that really needs a story around something if I'm going to understand it. The cool part about this passage, though, is that the context, the story around it, really makes a difference. Um, And that's why we're doing three weeks on this, um, even though at first I was thinking that we were just going to do one. (laughs) Um, About 600 years before this passage happened, the Israelites were conquered by the Babylonians. And at that point, they were deported away from their homeland which was a super big deal because, as you know, it's kind of their homeland, their promised land. It looked like God had, to ba- had abandoned them. 70 years later, they were actually able to return to their homeland, but it didn't really feel like they were back. The temple they built was puny in comparison to the first one, um, and they weren't really ruled by an Israelite, but, by, but they were occupied by foreign rulers. Um, and it didn't really seem like God was with them. The prophets at the time pretty much said as much. Finally, Daniel comes along and says that the exile won't just be 70 years, but 70 times seven years. Um, It would be 490 years before Israel would truly be back from exile. Fast forward to the time of Jesus, and that 70 times seven years is really starting to run out. Everyone was expecting that soon the exile would end. Sorry. Sorry. Uh, The Israelites would get their their new king, and everything would be right with the world. God would bless the Israelites immensely. The whole world would get some kind of residual benefit from it or something. And the evil oppressors and false Jews would get theirs. It would be great. But there was actually a time where it looked like the Jews had already ended the exile. In about 150 BC, a Greek king was ruling over Israel, where before the, the Greeks were pretty much just let the Jews rule themselves. Now, for whatever reason, the king was interfering a whole lot. He tried to install his own priest, tried to force the Jews to worship Zeus, brought pigs into the temple, and killed the Jews when they wanted to bring back the original priests and didn't want to worship Zeus. All of it was just not something that the Jews could tolerate. So the Jews revolted against his king, and they were led by a guy named Judah Maccabee. Together and with some help from the Romans, they kicked out the Greeks, and they were able to form their own kingdom. This was a huge deal. The Jews didn't have their own kingdom for about 400 years, and now they do. It looks like the exile was over. Judah Maccabee was a hero. He's the one who kicked out the foreigners, and finally there was a Jewish kingdom that lasted almost a full century. To this day, at Hanukkah, the Jews celebrate how Judah Maccabee and his fellow Jews, out of zeal for the law and the Jewish way of life, threw out the foreigners and brought independent rule. In fact, When the nation of Israel was founded in 1949, a lot of Jews looked back and saw a repeat of what happened with Judah Maccabee. Unfortunately, though, the Romans didn't help the Jews for nothing. And when the Jews fought amongst themselves over who would be the king for a while, the Romans conquered Judea in 63 BC. Nevertheless, Judah Maccabee had given the Jews a blueprint for how to end exile. Just like Judah Maccabee, they were supposed to follow Torah to the letter use some cunning when necessary. And if the foreign rulers kept them from following the Torah, they would revolt and God would strengthen them to overthrow the unjust government. They were certain about this. They had a playbook for God's coming kingdom and they did it before, they just have to do it again. At this point though, the Jewish people split into a whole bunch of different groups. And the reason they split was basically over different emphases on what exactly Judah Maccabee did that made him successful. Ultimately, these led to really important questions about, one, how exactly God would end the exile, and two, what made someone a part of Israel, part of God's people. You've probably heard of a couple of these groups from the Bible. There's the Pharisees, who believed that God would end the exile when his people are actually obedient to the law and make good sacrifices. And when God comes, he'll reward the ones who follow the law the way where they're supposed to. Judah Maccabee revolted because the Greeks kept him from following the Torah. So that means they have to follow the Torah, and the exile ends. And then there's the Essenes, who basically said that the Pharisees were corrupt and didn't follow the law hard enough, if you can believe it. Um, And so they moved out into the desert to keep from being corrupted by them. They were basically the Pharisees on steroids. The, The Essenes saw themselves as Judah Maccabee, and the Pharisees as the Greeks who kept them from following the Torah. There's the Zealots, who thought that God would end the exile when the Romans were overthrown using somewhat terroristic means. They thought that God would reward them when they do violence to establish his kingdom. Judah Maccabee used violence, so they should too. And then finally, there were the Sadducees, who thought basically that God wouldn't end the exile anytime soon, so everyone should make peace with the Romans and use them to get rich and prosperous by any means necessary. And by the way, everyone hated them the most, so if you can imagine that. But even they had their own justifications, even if they were flimsy. Judah Maccabee was cunning and used the Gentile nations like Rome to achieve independence. Well, so should they. I give you this story so that you can see that Jesus here is answering questions that a lot of people at this time were asking. He gives them totally different answers, though. And the answers he gave were bound to make everyone angry. The Jews would be saying, we have a playbook already. Look at Judah Maccabee. If you're the Messiah, be like him. But just like the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the Essenes and the Zealots, he answers the question of, one, how God would end that exile, and two, what makes someone a part of God's people. And no one would have liked his answers. You can see what he's doing by the language that he uses. If you ask someone of this time period, who are the children of God? Who has the kingdom of heaven? Who would be comforted? Who would inherit the earth? Who will receive mercy and who will see God? all those things in the Beatitudes, they would have answered, without any hesitation, Israel. The Old Testament used those phrases all the time to describe Israel. Israel is the son of God. When the exile ends, Israel will be comforted. They will receive the kingdom of heaven, they will inherit the whole earth, and they will see God. So clearly, Jesus is defining here what it means to be a part of God's people. He's telling them what makes someone a part of Israel, and who will benefit from the end of the exile. He also answers the question of how God is going to end exile. He's going to do it through the poor in spirit, those who mourn, the meek, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. In other words, he's not going to do it through a violent mob that manages to overthrow Rome. Jesus is saying that his kingdom isn't going to look anything like the kingdom of Judah Maccabee. And you can imagine if you're someone who's grown up their entire lives celebrating Hanukkah every December and hearing the stories about the hero Judah Maccabee. You, you would say that you want nothing to do with Jesus' quote-unquote kingdom. I've noticed this as I was looking for the art that next, it's the next three weeks for the Sermon on the Mount. And it's really interesting that it's traditional for paintings of the Sermon on the Mount to have people not really paying any attention. You'll see it on the bulletin in the next three weeks, and it's kind of amazing. It's small on the bulletin, but if you have really good eyes and you look closely, um, you'll see that hardly anyone in the picture is paying any attention to Jesus. There's even a guy selling pretzels, you know, if pretzels really existed back then. Um, But it seems like the artists all throughout the millennia have really picked up on that idea, that Jesus' message here is not something that anyone wants to hear. The kingdom that he's proclaiming isn't anything like the exciting and bloody one that Judah Maccabee created. This is the kingdom of God that Jesus says is coming to the earth. And as you'll see, this new kind of kingdom that Jesus is instituting is what the Jews should have been expecting from the very beginning. So in his first teaching on the book of Matthew, Jesus here is saying, here is what it means to be a part of my kingdom. This is the kind of person you're going to have to be to enjoy it. And here's how the exile is going to end. This is who we're meant to be. And as we'll see, this is who Jesus is. So first, his beatitude is, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That phrase, poor in spirit, is kind of a weird one. In Luke, when Jesus says this, it's actually a bit clearer. All Jesus says is, blessed are the poor. That's pretty simple, isn't it? Basically, Jesus is saying to people like the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the Romans that actually the kingdom of heaven isn't for them. It's not meant for the kinds of people who have it good in and of themselves or because of their high social status. It's not for the people who, who we might think are blessed by God. No, the kingdom of heaven turns everything upside down. Money is power, and kingdom, the kingdom of heaven is for the powerless. We're not going to end the exile by amassing enough wealth that Rome will have to let us go. No, the kingdom of heaven is going to come because of a willingly giving up our power. Paul says, you know the writ grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich." And the poor really do get to be rich. They get the whole kingdom of heaven. In other words, when Jesus' kingdom is instituted on the cross, they get everything. This is a really common theme, by the way, in the Old Testament. The Israelites are constantly hoping for the day of the Lord, which is the day when God comes in judgment and reverses the way that the world is organized. The oppressors become the oppressed, the rich become poor, the evil have evil done to them. In other words, the Old Testament authors hope for God to come in power, his own power, and set everything right. He's not going to need the puny wealth of some billionaire or a self-righteous zealot to get it done, either. We have a tendency among ourselves to think along the lines of, blessed is Jeff Bezos, for his is the kingdom of Amazon. But God's kingdom tells us to see the world differently. It's better to be a citizen of God's kingdom and inherit the whole world than to own one little company and be a billionaire. Here in Matthew, though, Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit. In other words, the ones that are blessed are the ones who are part of God's people, and those ones recognize their own spiritual poverty. They see that they really aren't the people they were supposed to be. They see their own sin and recognize that they need God to save them. Unlike the other types of Jews at this time, Jesus was saying the problem wasn't that other nations were oppressing Israel, but that Israel wasn't doing what it was meant to do. They were meant to be the light of the world, so that everyone sees them and sees a different way to live, and sees that the kingdom of God has come to earth. Israel needed to repent if they were going to enjoy the blessings of the day of the Lord. Again, this was a really common theme in the Old Testament. The prophets are constantly saying that if you want to be on the right side of the day of the Lord, then you need to examine yourself pretty thoroughly. You need to make sure that you yourself have been faithful to God before you start pointing fingers and fighting the people you think are doing it wrong. It's clear to Jesus that the Jews really haven't done that. They're interested in seeing God kick out the Gentiles. But they haven't given any thought about whether they're ready for the kingdom of God that comes after that. Are they as righteous as they think? Or do they need to do some serious self-examination before they're ready for God to come? As the church, maybe we have to do some of that ourselves. We sometimes like to point, like to, point to people outside the church who are not living right. And we like to see our enemies in society and culture as people that need to be turned down, torn down. But first, we need to examine ourselves. Are we as righteous as we think we are? Having enemies can be intoxicating, because it distracts you from seeing yourself clearly. Your focus can be entirely on someone else's evil, and just because of that, you see yourself as righteous. We live in a culture that loves to have enemies. If we don't have anything good to share, at least we can both hate the same things, right? And that's ultimately what makes us righteous, or at least what makes us feel righteous. Oh, I would never do something like that. Really? Wouldn't you? Before we find the speck in our enemy's eye, is there a plank in our own? Having enemies is comforting because it allows us to tell a really simple story. And the kingdom of Judah Maccabee, which all the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the Zealots and the Essenes really wanted, was able to tell that kind of story oppressive Gentiles bad, obedient Jews good. Having enemies makes it so that we don't ever have to do any serious self-examination. But before we as the church get power, like the Jews wanted at this time, are we sure that we're worthy to wield it? And you might be able to recognize that those poor and the poor in spirit are not quite as different as they might seem. Both of them are powerless. You can see that with the materially poor quite well. If you have money, you you have the power to get people to do a whole lot of things, from cleaning out your gutters to making unjust laws. But the spiritually poor are also powerless, because they have given up the false moral superiority that would allow them to crush their opponents without qualms. They give up the power to destroy, but in so doing, they are given the power to understand their opponents because your opponents are sinners just like you are. They need to repent just the same as you. Wouldn't you like to be treated with gentleness? And this is not the way that the world sees power. Power, for them, is wielding your clutched pearls as a club for your enemy. Power, for God's kingdom, is recognizing that Christ came to the world to save sinners like me. But we think like the world, too, sometimes. We think if we can just push the levers of the world system this way and that, maybe we can bring about the world that God intends. It makes some sense, doesn't it? But God doesn't need power or an outraged mob to bring his kingdom. Duh. Sure, God wants us to take action. There's no doubt about it. But Jesus here is making an important distinction. If the choice is between corrupting yourself by seeing power the way the world sees power as a raw, unchecked show of strength, wealth, and unearned moral outrage, and waiting on God to act. You have to choose waiting on God to act. The world's power is seductive. It warps you, and it turns you into someone different. If you've seen the movie The Godfather, it really illustrates this idea well. The big mafia boss commands all kinds of brutal things to keep his power and to get rich for his family. His son, the heir to the whole business, is always insisting that he's not his father, that he's one of the good ones, and that when he gets control of the, business, of the business, things will be different. Out of what he sees as a necessity, though, he made some shady deals to protect his aging father. He feels like he has to order some murders, and by the end of the movie, it's clear that he's simply become his father. That's the way the world's power works. And if you're put in the right situation, you're going to have a hard time resisting it. You do one shady thing that you feel you have to do, but then suddenly you've turned into someone completely different. But we have a greater power in Christ's love, which was poured out on the cross. That power is the one that created the kingdom of God, the only one that actually lasts. Where Judah Maccabees' kingdom lasted 100 years and Rome lasted 1,000 years, Christ's kingdom is still here today, and it's stronger now than it ever has been because it's based on a completely different kind of power the power of a servant who gives himself up in love for others and causing them to see that there's a different way to live in the world. So if you feel tempted to do something wrong that you think you have to do, try giving the way that Christ sees power a shot first. Do what you think is right, especially if it involves self-sacrifice, and see what happens. Second, Jesus says, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. This very clearly is a reference to Isaiah 40, which is the passage which describes the time when Israel returns from their exile. It says, comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem, and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, and that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. In other words, Isaiah cries for his people to be comforted because they're coming back. The world is being set right, and God is returning to his people. Her sins are paid for, and she has forgiven everything and now the whole world gets the benefits of God's covenant with Israel. Once again, Jesus is saying something that almost sounds obvious when you read it at face value. Who's going to be comforted? Those who mourn. Duh. Who else will be comforted? The happy ones? But it's actually a really biting critique of Israel. Going back to Isaiah 40, what was Israel supposed to be mourning? On the one hand, they were definitely supposed to be mourning the fact that they were in exile but they were in exile because of their sin. Ultimately, they were supposed to be mourning because it really seemed like their warfare hadn't ended, that her iniquity hadn't been pardoned, and that they were still suffering for their sins. That's why they needed to be comforted. In other words, they were supposed to be mourning because it was their own sins which caused them to be in the mess that they're in. Unfortunately, Jesus says, that's not what they're doing. Instead, they were scheming to raise up another Judah Maccabee. They were all treating the symptoms of their disease, but not the disease itself. The problem was that Israel was sinful, but instead of mourning that their sin caused the exile, they were mourning the exile itself. They were really working really hard to get rid of the Romans, thinking, gee, if we can just build the temple just right, make the right kind of sacrifices, and raise up our own Messiah, then God will come back and set everything right. But Jesus says the problem is, that Israel fundamentally isn't the people that they're supposed to be. They keep on sinning, but want to undo the consequences of their sin without simply just repenting. Again, Jesus is saying the kind of stuff that Israel should have known very well. The Jews wanted the day of the Lord, the day when God rewards the righteous and punishes the wicked, and that he ultimately sets up Israel in the place of honor it deserves. But the Old Testament is constantly saying, "Okay." you want the day of the Lord, and you should, because it's the day of the salvation of the world. But if you want the day of the Lord, you're going to have to be part of that righteous group and not the wicked group. In other words, if you want to be ready for God to do something big, start by repenting. Become the kind of person you think will be rewarded on the day of the Lord. In fact, the way that God has delayed doing something big is out of grace to you that you might repent. What Jesus is saying here really should be obvious. The ones who repented of their sins are truly a part of God's people. Who's going to get comforted? Those who mourn, duh. But we do the same kind of thing, too. Sometimes we focus a lot on external events and whether we're blessed, and we don't think much about becoming the kind of person who deserves to be blessed. We don't think about becoming the kind of person who could even receive blessing when it comes. We don't think about what God is teaching us through suffering. During college and grad school, I was 100% convinced that God was calling me to get a PhD in Old Testament. I was really excited about it. And at times, it really felt like it was the only truly exciting part of my life. Weird, I know. But I was doing well. I was having fun. I really felt like I had found my niche and my role, and it was going to be great. I did an internship. I figured out what I was going to write my dissertation on. I talked to a bunch of people at programs to try to schmooze, which I hate doing. I did everything to prepare. At the end of grad school, I applied to a bunch of PhD programs. And there were five programs I applied to, and four of them rejected me without having ever communicated with me at all. Finally, there was one program left, and it happened to be the one I wanted the most. And here's a picture of the rejection letter that they sent me. It says, Dear Joseph parentheses, (Joey, Alexander Moss, parentheses, Moss, comma, Moss, parentheses, Moss, comma, (laughs) Joseph Alexander, parentheses, Joey, followed by blah, 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 we're not taking you, (laughs) more or less. Um, And I was really kind of mad at God for that. (laughs) I felt like God had inspired me to do something. He had hung a carrot in front of me and led me around for four years, and then he took me away the moment I got close to it. I spent a couple weeks playing a lot of video games and doing very little homework. Kind of like the Israelites, I really searched for an enemy to blame. Could the professors I applied to work under, all just be really bad people? Well, it was easy to recognize that that was really dumb and irrational, since it couldn't be that all of the professors were crazy, right? So slowly, I felt like God was causing me to come to the realization that he was teaching me stuff with this. Was I trying to do this for God, or did I just think that it was going to be a lot of fun? It's hard to draw the line. But I think it really did become clear to me eventually. Was I really trying to glorify God or just pursuing dumb academic accolades? I mean, how many more professors and PhDs does this world need? God kind of sent me on a year of soul searching after that, which finally led me here. I realized I was kind of being like the Israelites here, mourning over the results of my messed up priorities and not fixing the priorities themselves. I'm sure you had similar stories. But it's really hard, when things aren't going your way, to view it as an opportunity to re-examine yourself. We really want to be the perfectly righteous sufferer who's never done anything wrong. We want to be Job. But sometimes the only way out is to do some work on yourself. And that's what Jesus is calling Israel to do here. And I've got to be careful here, though, because not all suffering is caused by our own sin. It's true that in a fallen world, some of the suffering ends up falling on people that don't really deserve it. Books like Ecclesiastes and Job are really clear about that. But before we jump to the conclusion that we are a perfectly righteous sufferer who hasn't done anything wrong, we really should examine ourselves and maybe get someone we know well to help us, because we might be missing something that's really important. In this passage, Israel has basically been scheming and strategizing to raise up a deliverer like Judah Maccabee, who can get them out from under the boot of Rome. In fact, there were probably quite a few people who thought that Jesus could really be that person that gets it done. But Jesus says that really what needs to happen is that Israel needs to repent to be part of God's people. And you can see that it isn't really the kind of teaching that most people want. You would rather be told that there is some evil enemy out there that's causing all of your problems and you just have to fight them really hard and everything will be better. But Jesus says that you first have to take a really close look at yourself and find out whether you're involved in something that's actually destroying yourself. Even worse, repentance is hard. Fighting an enemy really goes along with all of our basest instincts. But repentance means reining yourself in. It can make you feel guilty. And sometimes it seems impossible to really get it to stick. But in Christ, we have been given the power to do it right. He has infused us with his own power, which makes us capable of living our lives the way we're supposed to, because he already did it. He knows the secret to defeating the sin in our lives, because he defeated sin in his resurrection. And every day, he helps us with it. Changing your ways is never fun, but sometimes it's the only thing that can fix your problems. Let's pray. Lord God, teach us how to change those behaviors in our lives that are so entrenched that they feel impossible to change. Give us the strength to repent and become the kinds of people that are citizens of your kingdom. In your name, amen.